Jude is both an encouragement and an alarm clock. Jude, it seems, set out to write a nice, quiet, simple, uplifting, encouraging letter. But he got sidetracked by the Spirit of God. As he was aware of what was going on around him during his own times, and he saw the apostasy, the falling away that was going on inside the church, the corruption that was going on inside the church, the wickedness of the world creeping in upon the people of God, and the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints was being systematically dismantled by false teachers. He thought, you know, it's not time to just give people pats on the back, though there is a time for that. It's not just a time to speak about our common salvation. I've got to tell them and I've got to warn them with a hard-hitting letter. And as you can see, it's a short letter. He doesn't go into much detail, but yet he's succinct. Uh, Jude writes like a CNN reporter. CNN is able to get the entire world news in 30 minutes, including commercials. And Jude kind of preaches like an asthmatic. He wants to make sure that his message is clear to the point, but not belabored with words. It is an alarm clock because of apostasy, as we have said. In fact, we could have called this book The Acts of the Apostates versus the Acts of the Apostles that we just finished. The Acts of the Apostates. And he covers several examples of people who have fallen away in the Old and New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament, and how they should be applied to us. But again, verse 3, something that if you know anything about Jude, you're familiar with this book. When he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith It was once for all delivered to the saints. Peter, the great apostle, the one who denied Jesus three times, who was restored by Jesus, who was a leader in the early church, wrote two letters, as you know. The second letter was a warning also of false teachers. He predicted that soon false teachers would arise within the church. They would be corrupt. People would fall away. That there would be Christians who are not founded not taught the Scriptures. They never had a good foundation. They will fall prey, Peter said, to these false teachers because they don't know any better. They're open to anything and they'll swallow anything. And so he's given them a warning and the warning has come true. The time is between 70 and 80 A.D. and already there are false teachers like crazy going up and down the churches. Something that Paul also warned about, not only in his epistles, but in the very book of Acts, when he got the Ephesian elders together. And he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves, that's what he called false prophets. He just didn't say misled teachers. They're savage wolves. They want to devour you. They'll come up from your own flock. Beware of them. He said, I have not shunned to give you the whole counsel of God to ward them off. This book as we have mentioned, and as you have already seen, is some strong, forceful language. Jude was not a theologian. He was just a straightforward, shoot-from-the-hip, rubber-meets-the-road pastor. And a good pastor not only feeds the sheep, but a good pastor protects the sheep. 
There's two types of pastors. My pastor used to always say, Chuck Smith, he would say, there are those who want to feed the sheep and then there's those who want to fleece the sheep. There's those who are always pushing the money bit, always the big offerings, always I need, we need, and kind of like minister to me instead of I'm here to minister to you. But then there's those who feed the sheep the Word of God. And with that feeding comes the need to protect because there are other shepherds who it would seem are well-meaning and their message is laced with truth but also laced with error. And there is the need to rise up and protect the sheep from the air. Jude was one of these ministers. We mentioned last week that Jude was writing against two trends that were happening and we tried to show how those trends have surfaced in the church today. The first trend was called antinomianism. It comes from two words, anti, against, namas, the law. They were against the law. Their philosophy went something like, I'm free in grace. I'm not under the restraint of the law. Not only the Mosaic law, but any moral law. There are no moral constraints or restraints in my life. I can do absolutely whatever I want to do in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm free in Christ. If I want to be immoral, I'll do it as long as I do it in the name of Christ. Because I'm free from the law. I'm free to follow my own fleshly pursuits in any way that I please. And of course, that does surface from time to time within the church, unfortunately. It's called hypocrisy, basically. Saying one thing, doing another. Saying that I'm a Christian, but living any way you want to. Now, there are those who say that there are Christians, but... They live on a daily basis as though God did not exist. He's not a part of their work life. He's not a part of their family life. He's not a part of their decision making. They're practical atheists, though they claim to be Christians. They say that they can live any way they want. And if you lovingly call them into account, what would their response be? Don't judge me, brother. What right do you have, brother, to judge me, brother? Oh, brother. They want no accountability. They want no true discipleship. They want to do what they want to do in the name of God and have God slap them on the back, say, good job, do whatever you want. Jude writes against that, antinomianism. And of course, he writes against Gnosticism. If you've been here for any length of time, you know what Gnosticism is already. It had a few beliefs. Number one, that there are two forces in the universe, good and evil. Everything that is spiritual is good. Everything that is material is evil. The Gnostics said God is good, thus God cannot be material. God cannot have created the material universe because it's evil. If it's evil and God is good, which means God did not create the material universe, who did? The Gnostics said some far-flung emanation, manifestation that went out from God, There were thousands, millions of these emanations and one went so far from God that didn't even know God, was hostile to God, he became evil and he created the material universe. The second tenet of Gnosticism is that we must have access to God, have fellowship with God. The only way you can do that is to go through all of these emanations. Get in touch with them and they'll eventually lead you to God. The only way you could do that was through a special type of higher knowledge. 
the gnosis or gnosis. That's what Gnostic means. In other words, I know more than you, brother. I'm smarter than you. I'm more spiritual than you. I walk closer to God than you. And someday maybe you'll be as spiritual as I am, but it's going to take a while. It was the spiritual superiority. Oh, yes, you're a Christian, but I'm spirit-filled. Oh, yes, you're a Christian, but maybe you'll approach my level someday. They had this kind of superiority complex, elitist complex, this super kind of knowledge. They went on to say that man is a spark of the divine within him and that man really is a god or can become like God. We showed also that there are people in the church today, Mormonism, not in the church, but in the world today, Mormonism, says that we can become a God. The New Age movement promotes that you are God and God is you and you're all the same and the door is God and the plants are God and everything's God. And you individually have the Christ mind. All you have to do is raise your conscious level. We've also seen the analogy in the faith movement. And we also saw the analogy in modern psychology. Not all of it, but much of it. And if you weren't here and that perks your attention, it's on tape. We won't go over it again. But the purpose of the letter is to warn and to exhort, as we saw in verse 3. And when he says, I felt it necessary to exhort you. That's an important word. It kind of means, I'm going to get behind you and give you a push. Not just a, not a pat on the back, not a hug. We need that in the church, but... My job in this letter is to give you a push, to get you excited about a problem that's going on. It's military language. Really, it is. It's, it's the same language that a general or a sergeant would give to the troops that are underneath them. And it's, as we said, a very forceful military kind of an atmosphere that's in this letter. It's a call to arms. Jesus is the commander-in-chief, and we're in His army. And we have to remember that the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And we have to remember that, that we need to know how to use the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, and to walk in a mature spiritual way. That's our goal, that we might please the Lord. Unfortunately, the church in many cases becomes a playground. And believers are throwing their bottles and their rattles at each other, fighting and arguing and bickering. Instead of moving forward, it's like, quit fighting one another. Fight the real enemy the false teaching that goes on, the cultists that come to your door, the evil that pervades the world and slips into the church. Fight the real enemy. Don't fight each other. The purpose of the letter is a call to arms. Cliff Barrows, who's an associate with Dr. Billy Graham, often said that when he was a kid, his dad would say, Cliff, keep your ammunition dry. And he was referring to an analogy using the Revolutionary War when they have to keep their ammunition dry for their muskets so that they could always be ready if they needed to defend their country. They needed to fight. Keep it dry. Keep the powder dry. Spiritually, we need to keep our powder dry. We have a roaring lion running around out there seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says we are to be instant. In season or out of season, or as another translation says, be on duty at all times. You're never off duty. 
Now you will be one day in heaven. You'll graduate. You'll rest in heaven. You'll celebrate in heaven. Not that you shouldn't celebrate now, you should, but you are on a battleground. And the things that were going on during the early church, during the time that Jude wrote this, are also problems today. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's all just the introduction. Who is he writing to? There's no church that's listed here. It's not Jude to those who live at Ephesus or Galatia or Colossae or Thessalonica or Rome. It seems to be a general letter, probably the same people that received Peter's letters. Those Jews and Gentiles who had come to the faith who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, the diaspora of God, those who were scattered, yet one in Jesus Christ. He calls them three different things. First of all, they are called... Secondly, they are sanctified by God the Father. And third, preserved in Jesus Christ. First of all, we are called by God. That means more than just God standing on the sidelines going, Hey, you! To be called is a position that God gives us. Remember on Sunday morning, weeks ago, we read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And in Romans 8, it says, Whom He predestined, those He also called... And those He called, the same He also justified, and whom He justified, those He also glorified. It's this process of salvation. Before the world began, in God's mind, in God's eyes, He had your salvation plotted out. He knew just the person who would come to you and put that tract in your hand. He knew when you would turn on the television and just happen to watch Billy Graham crusade. Or the night your friend asked you to church and you said, Oh, forget it. Church, what a bore. Well, I don't have anything to do. I'll just come. And you accepted the Lord. God knew all that. He predestined. He called. He justified and He glorified. Peter in his epistle said, He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what you've been called from. What does it mean that God called you? Well, you were really in a mess before. You were in a a quagmire of sin, desperation. You had no meaning, no purpose, no forgiveness of your sins. You lived in a guilt complex. God removed you. He called you by His predestined grace. He took you. He justified you. He made you clean instantly. And then He's changing you, as we see in the next word. He he, uh, sanctified in God. And then eventually you'll be glorified. It is sad, but many people refuse the call of God. And you've noticed that. You've witnessed to people. You've shared the gospel. You've poured out your heart. You've spent time with people. And time and time again they've said, No, I'm not ready for it. I remember how difficult that was when I felt God was calling my brother to come to know Christ. And I drove all the way from Orange County where I lived up to Victorville where he lived. And I knocked on his door at 11 o'clock at night. Now he was kind of an outlaw biker at that time, rode with the Hells Angels. So I kind of knocked lightly stood upright and was very polite, even though he was my brother. And I said, this is going to sound kind of weird, Bob, but I feel like God really wants me to share with you a little bit more. He said, come in. So I came in. And for the first time in his life, I remember an openness. His heart was just open. He just listened. Before, he'd just say, shut up. 
I don't want to hear it. It's garbage. This time he listened, nodded his head. And when I thought the Lord had him, I thought, good going, Lord. You just, you nailed him. He turned to me and he said, I'm not interested right now. I've thought it through. I don't want it. Now, I knew that God was calling him, and he was. He received the calling outwardly, but he didn't respond inwardly to the call of God. And that broke my heart. And I said something to him that night that I did not know would be prophetic. I said, you know, you don't know how long you have to live. Now I gave him a warning. I turned from Mr. Nice Guy to warning time. I said, you don't know how long you have to live. You could be out on your motorcycle and you could get killed instantly. Are you ready for that? He said, I don't think so. I don't know, but it's a risk I'll have to take. Two weeks later, he was killed on a motorcycle. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because he saw the hardness of their hearts. They were being called by God, but they refused the call of God time and time again. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And then he spells out the consequences in the next few verses. Many have heard the outward call of God, but they've never responded to the inward call of God in their hearts. Many are called, few are chosen. The believers that he's writing to are those who are called by God. Predestined, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. The word call in the Greek language in this verse is kalein. It means a few things. I'd like to share all of them with you since we're going slowly in Jude. Number one, it means to call or to summon a person to responsibility, to duty. You've been called by God. You've been summoned by God as a duty, a responsibility. You're in his army now. Instead of Uncle Sam wants you, God the Father wants you. He summoned you in His army to seek first His kingdom, to spread His work worldwide. You know, Jesus saw the crowd, you remember, and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. He said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust out laborers into His harvest field. The very next chapter, He commissions them to go out into the harvest field and touch the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go for it, man. And as you go, preach the kingdom of God and give them the good news. You've been called, you've been summoned by God the Father for a responsibility. You know, I read that the communists, in the days when communism had its heyday in the Soviet Union, were not wimps about their call. They called a person to responsibility. They never said, listen, if you're into it, fine. If you're not into it, no problem, man. They believed that calling a person and challenging that person to a difficult task was the best approach, and it worked for the communists. They told them exactly what it was going to be like. So it's going to be tough. You have to give your life for the party. You have to lay your life down, sacrifice it even to the point of death. Are you willing to change your country? Yes, they took up the arms, and they bore the flag of communism proudly. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus said... When the man said, I'll follow you wherever you go, he said, listen, foxes have holes, birds have nests, I don't have a place to lay my head. You think about it first. You count the cost first. Just don't go for it unless you know you can follow through with the decision. Like a king, if he's going to go out to war, he has to make sure he has enough money to finish the project. Count the cost. You have been called. 
to a high privilege and responsibility and duty summoned by God with that responsibility. Go for it. I found something that I thought was really interesting, a little bit humorous, but there is much truth in it. There were four people, it says, in the church whose names were everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. The church had responsibilities and everybody was asked to help. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but you know who did it? Nobody. It ended up that everybody, he blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Then the church grounds needed some work and old somebody was asked to help, but somebody, he got angry about that because anybody could have done it just as well. And after all, it was really everybody's job. In the end, the work was given to old nobody and nobody did a fine job. And on and on this went. Whenever the work was to be done, nobody could always be counted on. Nobody visited the sick. Nobody gave liberally. Nobody shared his faith. In short, nobody was a very faithful member. Uh, Finally, the day came when somebody left the church and took anybody and everybody with him. Guess who was left? Nobody. (laughs) You're summoned to a high calling. The word kalein, called, also means in the Greek language to be summoned to a feast, to a celebration, to a happy occasion. God has invited you to be His guest. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, or as it is better translated, that you might have life to the full, or as I loosely translate it, that you might live to the max. Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. Now we put salt on different foods to give it flavor. If you're a Christian, there's no reason for your life to be dull and insipid. But to be salty. Exciting, but not in the sense that you never go through trials. Not in the sense that you plaster on a fake smile and say, Praise the Lord at everything that you don't mean. Plastic fruit never satisfied anybody. It satisfied nobody, however, but not anybody. (laughs) But it means that God has summoned you. You're called by God, not only to a responsibility, but to live a life and enjoy Him. Live to the max, summoned to a festival, to a happy occasion. I have come that they might have life and live it more abundantly. It is tragic for me. Though we all face trials, we all face tragedy, we all face being pushed in the corner and being pushed in the trials of life. I find that one of the greatest curses of the church is that many Christians live under guilt that they don't need to live under. And instead of enjoying the freedom and the joy of the Lord being their strength, they're always burdened by guilt. I didn't do enough. I'm not perfect. Instead of, look, Lord, just grow me up. I want to learn. I want to live. I want to do your will, but... Ease me along. Grow me along. I want to get there. But not living under the guilt that you didn't match up. Listen, God knows you. The Bible says He knows our frame that we're but dust. What a great scripture. What do you expect of dust? Nothing. It's no good. Unless you pour water on it and mold it. And God will pour the water of His Spirit upon you and mold you and work with you. But God knows who you are. He knows what you're made of. 
He's willing to come in and pour His Spirit upon you, work in you, give you life. You don't need to live under the guilt. Eric Fromm wrote a book years ago called The Sane Society, and he noted something about our society today. He said, quote, It is indeed amazing that in as fundamentally and irreligious culture as ours, the sense of guilt should be so widespread and deep-rooted as it is. You know why that is? God has given us a conscience. And a conscience is good. It gives us the parameters between good and evil. God has put that within us. But everybody that I've ever met desires to live with a conscience free of guilt. And they cope with guilt in an interesting set of mechanisms. Some people just repetitively sin until they just harden their hearts and they have no more guilt. Other people live constantly under their guilt and their guilt pushes them in whichever direction. But everybody desires to have a conscience free from guilt. I'd like to read an excerpt from a letter by a prisoner who was killed in the electric chair, I believe, years ago, sentenced to death for his crimes. Before he died, he wrote this letter to his girlfriend. It seems that I know evil more intimately than I know goodness. And that's not a good thing either. I want to get even. I want to be made even, whole, my debts paid, whatever it may take, to have no blemish, no reason to feel guilt or fear. I'd like to stand in the sight of God, to know that I am just and right and clean. When you're this way, you know it. And when you're not, you know that too. It's all inside of us, each of us. It is, isn't it? I remember how it felt. I remember how I experienced the alleviation of all of my sins, all of my guilt, this huge burden the moment I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I remember that instant. It was real. John Bunyan wrote a book of it, about it hundreds of years ago, and he depicts Christian, this pilgrim, going through life with his huge backpack on. He's just burdened down wherever he goes, and finally he sees Moses, and Moses has the law in his hands, and Moses starts beating him. And eventually Jesus comes. He sees Jesus on the cross and the burden unwraps itself, unravels itself from the shoulders and falls to the ground. And there's a beautiful picture in one of the books that I have where Jesus is holding Pilgrim and warding off Moses who has the law. In other words, I'm going to protect him. He's mine. You can't beat him down with the law anymore. He's called you to a feast, to celebrate, to know the alleviation of guilt. Finally, the word in the Greek language means to summon a person to judgment. So it can be used one of three ways. You are called. Summoned to a high responsibility, number one. Summoned to celebrate and enjoy the life of Christ, number two. But it could also mean in the Greek language, and it was often used to call a person or subpoena a person to court. To give an account for yourself. To stand before the judge. And, of course, we know that everybody will stand before God at judgment. Right? Everyone. There will one day be a final tribunal before the throne. The tribunal that you face as a Christian is not the same as an unbeliever. The unbeliever will stand before the great white throne judgment and be judged because his name was not found in the book of life. And he'll be cast into outer darkness. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else or any person in the Bible. For the Christian, we will stand, the Bible says, before the judgment seat of Christ. 
to receive the rewards for the things that we have done in our body, whether good or evil. It is not a judgment seat for salvation. It is a judgment seat for our place in the kingdom age, for adjustment. The things that we've done and the motivations with which we have done them, we will give an account before the Lord. And that is why I think what we should do for the Lord should be done in a way where the glory doesn't go to us. That's why I don't like standing many people up in front and say, now here's a special person in the body who's done this, this, and this. Let's give them a big hand. Or there's a person who's given thousands and thousands of dollars to the church. Let's acknowledge him. Because I, if I do that, will steal his reward. I don't want to be guilty of stealing His reward. Jesus said, if you get your reward on earth, you won't get it in heaven. What a bummer. To be before the judgment seat of Christ and oh man, I can't wait, man. I've served the Lord hard all my life and now's the payoff. And that really is quite an impetus. I can't wait for that. I'm not looking for the pats on the backs and the plaudits of men, but well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Oh, that's all I need, Lord. But what a drag if I see my rewards are just, you know, a little tiny bundle. And say, yeah, but God, there's nothing here in regards to what I did on such and such a day. Oh, I know. It's because you made such a big deal out of it, Skip. And everybody knows that you did that. So you already got your reward. Oh, bummer. Well, what about that, that gift that I gave? Well, your name was on that brass plaque in the back of the church that you donated that wing. Oh, man. <laughs> Don't give me my reward now. Let's wait for the kingdom. (laughs) Someone once wrote, In the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words, but someday each of us will have to sing solo before God. Someday, just you and God will face off. You'll be saved if you know Jesus. You will have passed from death into life. There's no question about salvation. But Paul said, some of you will be saved as though by fire. It's just like, whoo, I just barely made it. But Peter said, we ought to look for an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I want an abundant entrance. If this life is a testing ground, and this life is all of the time can be spent for what I do for Jesus now will affect my future life. Man, for me to not live wholeheartedly before the Lord is foolish. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so we live with eternity stamped on our minds and on our hearts. Now, some people don't like the idea of being accountable. They don't like the idea of standing before God in judgment. But you know what? Everybody is accountable. And you're accountable for acting according to the light that you've received. And oftentimes Christians are judged more harshly than non-believers. Judgment begins, the scripture says, at the house of God. With us. That's why we're to judge ourselves, examine our hearts before the Lord. I heard of a case one time where two men had robbed a jewelry store. One of them was a lawyer. The second was a high school dropout. They went to court. The judge gave a 10-year sentence to the lawyer. This is not a lawyer's joke, by the way. And a three-year sentence to the dropout. When the lawyer or the, uh, the counselor for the lawyer protested that it was such a harsh judgment, 
The lawyer said, excuse me, the judge said, but the lawyer is to be a finer example of keeping of the law because of his status and his privilege in society. And so it is with the Christian. We're all summoned not only to a responsibility, not only to a festival or a feast and a happy occasion, but to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We have been called, and all of those ramifications play into the Christian life. Secondly, I hope we can finish the verse, to those who are sanctified by God the Father. Now that word is related to another word. Let's read on. Beloved, verse 3, I was very diligent while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The word sanctified and saints come from the same root word, hagios, to be set apart for a special purpose. You've been called by God, summoned by God on those three levels. You are sanctified by God the Father. You're set apart. God has a special work just for you, a special place, a place of special privilege. We get the word sanctification from the word saint. Now, I was brought up to believe that saints were special people whom a body of believers or a certain group met and convened and decided, that is Saint so-and-so. He did some special miraculous work in history. We deem him from the church as a saint. When I found out the truth, I was astonished. I couldn't accept it. The Bible says that we are all called saints. I, I thought, I'm not a saint. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect. What a saint means is that you have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ and set apart by God the Father. And there's an ongoing process that's taking place. Sanctification is both a one-time act, He sets you apart, and a process, He's setting you apart. You're becoming holy. When I found out that, I thought, God, that's awesome. Saint Skip has got a nice kind of a ring to it. I like it. But my friends really never caught on and called me Saint Skip, so I just kind of dropped it after a while. But we're all saints. What is a saint? A saint is simply a sinner that's been revised and edited by God. You're being changed by God the Father. You're sanctified by God, both a fact and a process. How is it a process? Well, the Bible says we've been delivered, past tense, from so great a death. We're being delivered, and we trust that God will yet deliver us. We've been delivered once. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ, His blood became efficacious in your life. You were instantaneously delivered from the penalty of sin. You'll never have to face judgment for your sin. It was put upon Jesus. But you are being delivered from the power of sin. And I hope you're noticing that stage of growth in your life where the grip of sin doesn't have the same hard grip that it has, but it's becoming easier and easier to overcome as you obey the Lord. You're being delivered. That's called sanctification. But the Bible says we trust in the Lord that we will yet be delivered. You were delivered from the penalty. You're being delivered from the power. One day you'll be delivered from the presence of sin. It won't even be around to tempt you. There won't be those temptations. You'll just be able to just be glorified, as the Bible says, right before the Lord. There is, in sanctification, two sides of it that we can't miss. And we would miss it if we just read this verse alone. 
There's a divine side and there's a human side. There's God's responsibility and there's our responsibility. This verse speaks of the divine side. We've been sanctified by God the Father. And there are other verses of Scripture that say that. 1 Thessalonians tells us, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. But there's also a human side. In other words, I play a part. I can't just kick back and say, well, I'm sanctified by God. I don't need to obey Him. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to go to church and fellowship or pray because God does it all, right? Let go and let God. Wrong. Let go, let God, and then let's go with God. You keep going with Him. There's a human side. The Bible says, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness without which no man will see God. Another translation says, follow after sanctification. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I press toward the goal, the mark of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I do something. I run the race that is set before me, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. There are two different views of sanctification, and both of them can get out of balance. There's the person who says, It's just surrender. It's just let go and let God. I don't have to do anything. It's just all God. That's called quietism. Then there's another group called pietism. And that is self-discipline. Work. Strong. You know, a a deliberate kind of everyday discipline. And you set up such a stringent activity schedule that if you haven't memorized all 50,000 scriptures that day and read 40 books of the Bible and prayed for six hours, of course I'm exaggerating, then you're not a spiritual person. You have failed to meet that level. That's called pietism. I am doing something to become holy before the Lord and it's all me. It all rests upon me individually. The Bible teaches both. There's a cooperation. God gives me the ability, but then I have to take the ability and go for it. It's like the kid who took a test in school. And she got all A's, and her friend got all D's. And the little friend said, how did you get all A's? She said, I prayed. I prayed and asked God to help me. And so the girl who got D's said, oh, I'll try that. The next night she said, God, help me to get A's tomorrow on my test. The next day, though, she got D's. And she was indignant at her Christian friend. How come you got A's again and I got D's again? I prayed. Oh, but I prayed and then I studied, said the girl with A's. I said, God, give me the ability and the strength to retain the information and to get a good grade. So I cooperated with God. And the Bible teaches that cooperation. Verses like 2 Peter, His divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Therefore... For this very reason, give all effort and add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, and so forth. God's done it all. Cooperate with Him and put effort into it. Another verse of Scripture in Colossians, I also labor, striving according to His working, which works mightily in me. Your spiritual growth depends on how you surrender to the Lord and how you cooperate with the Lord. You can grow as much as you want to. Did you know that? 
I've met many people who say, well, you know, I'm not a spiritual Christian. I don't know the Bible that well. Well, that's okay. You don't have to be Theodore Theologian, but you do have to grow. God has given you everything you need to become a mature, growing, vibrant Christian. He's given you the resources. Apply them. Appropriate them. And it will work mightily in you. It will work mightily in you. So we can't always use that as an excuse. Well, I don't know the Bible very well. Well, how long have you been a Christian? Well, only five years. Five years? Really? Well, I think you could know the Bible enough by now, like it says in Hebrews. The time you ought to be teachers. You have the need that you're taught, the basic principles, the oracles of God. Someone once said God deals with some people like grapes. He just grabs a hold of them, part and parcel. But then others He deals with like onions, just peels one layer at a time. But you can have God deal with you. You can grow. You can have God completely sanctify you by your surrendering to Him and your cooperating with Him and obeying Him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, we only have a couple minutes, so I should at least finish that word off and uh, let you know that there are other translations. In fact, some of you were puzzled when I read that verse because your translation says, to those who are called by God and beloved or loved by God the Father. That is another translation. And depending on which Bible you have, it will read differently. Now, we don't have the time, but the Bible... The translations that we have today are based on two different types of texts. And in the future, when time permits, we'll get into it a little bit more. But the Greek text could say that we are agapeo, which means loved by God, or it could say hagiasmo, we are sanctified by God. Either way, both of them are true. And whichever Bible you have, you still have the truth. There's enough scripture that would back up either view. I don't think you have to get upset and worry that, oh no, maybe I have a flaw in my Bible. Maybe I don't have the right one. Maybe I'll learn Greek. Well, you could learn Greek and you'd still have the same problem because the Greek texts themselves, in this case, disagree. This is one of the few places they do. Next week, we will finish up verse 1 and verse 2. And uh, then I have time to get into these things and uh, we can discuss the reason for the discrepancy. I'll give you a little bit of background on that. Discuss the love of God and discuss what it means to be preserved and kept by the Lord until that final day. Great truth yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to soak ourselves in the Word of God. Lord, we're so thankful that you love us with an everlasting love. That you have given to us, your people, your saints, your separated ones, every single thing that has to do with spiritual life and being godly. It comes through the knowledge of you, you who called us by glory and virtue. I pray, Lord, that we would have a deep sense of thankfulness and worship because of these provisions, and at the same time, that sense of calling that would cause us to cooperate. Knowing that we are called with a great responsibility, called 
to a feast to celebrate with joy and rejoicing and called one day to give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would take this seriously. Not living under guilt, not being motivated by guilt, but being motivated by your love. That we would understand your love in a greater fashion. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.